episode of 2024 and we have a real treat in store because joining us today is Ian Ross, author of two of the best books of 2023, if I can get them in the right order. The first was Battle Song, following the Battle of Lewis in 1264, and the second was War Cry, which showed Simon de Montfort's spectacular rise to power and eventual downfall at the Battle of Evesham in 1265. So welcome, Ian. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of 2024. Hello, and thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it is an absolute pleasure. There is not much, now I was thinking about this, there's not much historical fiction written on the Second Baron's War. I couldn't actually think of another novel that does, oh, except Sharon Penman's series that includes Simon de Montfort. I couldn't think of anything that's based specifically on the Second Baron's War. So what drew you to writing about the period? Yeah, it is uh, It is quite unusual. I think one of Elizabeth Chadwick's recent ones uh, was or, or sort of culminated around that same period. But yes. uh, yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the medieval world and I've always wanted to write about it. I mean, previously I was writing about the late Roman period. That was my uh, six book Twilight of Empire series, which... Um, I think the last one came out in 2019, um, but I'd always wanted to, to move on to the medieval world. So after I'd finished that previous Roman series, I thought the, the Middle Ages was the place to go. And I suppose the mid 13th century always seemed to me like the sort of quintessent um, medieval scene. You had sort of the, the high point of heraldry, the high point of the mounted knights, stone castles, the conversation going on around chivalry as a as a sort of way of life, really. Um, so, yeah, the mid 13th century seemed to me the closest to the ideal of um, the medieval scene. My image of what medieval England uh, looked like and the kind of scenes that I wanted to write about. So thinking about that period of the mid 13th century, I then came to what we call the Second Barons War. Obviously, it wasn't called that at the time. Um, but this great conflict, this great civil war between Simon de Montfort and various of his supporters and the king, King Henry III, and his royal government. Once I came across that period, that war, I realized that it would give me everything I needed for the stories that I wanted to write. Um, you've got this situation where this band of rebels rose up against the king, saying that his rule was unjust. Then you have this uh, extraordinary sequence of conflicts in an era when pitch battles were actually very rare. Yep. Um, people yeah. were able to you know, come onto the battlefield because they were dangerous, mm. because you couldn't really control which way they were going to go. So as a result, you know, in the whole of the 13th century, you've really only got these two big battles in England, big pitch battles, one of them at Lewis, and then following that the next year at Evesham. 
And in fact, the year after that, the greatest siege in English history, really, at Kenilworth. So having these big historical conflicts so close together in time, involving the same cast of characters, you know, with one battle going one way, and then the next year, the second battle going completely the opposite direction, uh, seemed to offer such a, a great wealth of dramatic possibilities that I knew I'd, I'd found my subject as soon as I as soon as I arrived there. And also, you've got all this other stuff going on at the same time in England itself. You've got not only the kind of the social conflicts around the emergence of what I suppose we could call English identity, but also these um, these terrible. Uh, attacks on the Jewish community, which were really at the center of this conflict and which uh, I don't think anyone could really ignore. Uh, so it wasn't just a matter of uh, knights and barons kind of cavorting around the landscape. You know, there was fighting going on in the north and in Wales and in the south and in East Anglia as well. Um, it was really a sort of um, an all-encompassing conflict. And so as a result of that, to take a fictional character, because, you know, these novels aren't about Simon de Montfort, they're not about the king, they're about um, a fictional protagonist, Adam de Norton, uh, who begins the story as a young squire and becomes a knight over the course of the novels. Um, and I throw him into the middle of all this. And of course, because it's a civil war, it's not obvious which side he's going to be on. He needs to decide who he's going to support in this. And this is the great thing in terms of novels, at least, about civil wars and civil conflicts, that they provide um, opportunities for people to make decisions mm -hmm. based on what's going to be best for them based on perhaps what they're forced to do because of their family or their friends. So all of that already provides lots of great kind of character building opportunity. And also you've got these fantastic historical personalities and at the same time. You've got Simon de Montfort, who's one of these great towering figures of, of medieval history, you know, incredibly controversial, incredibly multifaceted, obviously hugely charismatic at the time and able to summon this, this tremendous uh, allegiance among so many people. And yet at the same time, when we look back on him now, quite uh, a troubling figure, you know, with many dark angles to him. So you've got him and then you've got um, the Lord Edward, the, uh, the son and heir of Henry III, also very compelling, very energetic, violent, arrogant. And yet, you know, we see him developing into this king he will he will soon become. And then you've got these other figures as well, like Gilbert de Clare, the, the Earl of Gloucester, and Countess Eleanor de Montfort's wife. Um, so, so many of these people who can be there kind of populating the background, pushing and pulling the characters in one direction um, and another. So as soon as I came across that background, I knew that that was where, where I wanted to set the story. And really it was like kind of throwing myself into some, some huge feast, particularly coming from the late Roman world. Well documented, but really there's only sort of one or two sources on, on, each, on each event. And I was coming to this and suddenly I was getting sort of nine, ten, a dozen on every particular thing. And this huge amount of scholarship and background reading as well. It was, it mm. was really tremendous. I just spent sort of months just going through the whole thing, just trying to read everything I could come across. But then, of course, you have to start putting the story itself together mm. and bringing the characters to life and sort of thinking, well, not only what happened and how did these things happen, but how would it feel to be involved in this? What would this be like if you were? thrown into the middle of it and you didn't know what was going to happen next. You didn't know who was going to win this battle or even whether or not a battle had happened because news travels so slowly. So it was trying to reconstruct that that ongoing moment and that uncertainty mm -hmm. of, a, of a real sort of a real present rather than just a historical narrative.
so yeah, I mean, that was <laughs> that was uh, the long story of how I came to, to write about the Second Baron's War. Why other people haven't written about it, I don't know. Um, I, it, there seems to be so much there. There's just so much material and there's such a lot of events crammed into such a small area. You know, this is really only two, maybe three years we're talking about. And the whole country is being thrown into this great revolution and then counter-revolution and all that sort of thing. So. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's why. Perhaps it's just it's it's too big a subject. Yeah, maybe people don't actually feel that they can explain why events went the way they did. <laughs> yeah, there is a there's a lot of explaining to be done. I mean, obviously, um, writing novels one of the the difficult things is always trying to cut back on on over explaining. But I don't know. My mm-hmm. my view has always been that if you follow the characters and you follow what they would know and how they hear information and how they decide what's going on. That's the best way to do it. But yeah, there, yeah, you know, you always have to avoid these moments where one character sits down with another and say, "Well, you know, tell tell me all about um, the March of Barons." Not the provision box, but anyway, you know. No, your account is 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 a kind of very visceral account. You really get into, I think, not not just the the, the blood and gore, but also the issues that, that you've mentioned. I think it's in that sense. I think it really reflects the period very well. But I think it's a period that is a bit of a lost period to, if you like, the, the average man in the street, if there is such a thing. Because everybody everybody's heard of the Wars of the Roses, and that that is a big kind of broad canvas conflict. But as you said, because this, this in, in the 13th century only lasts a few years, it doesn't seem to have gripped the national consciousness, really. It's Henry III, I think. You know, the one king who isn't the most famous person in in, in his own reign. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Simon, everybody knows Simon de Montfort. Not everybody knows who he was fighting. But he's also squeezed between, even though he's the longest medieval, longest medieval ruler. You know, he reigned for fifty-six years, longer than certainly his father, and even longer than his son. Um, but he's squeezed between King John and the Magna Carta story yeah. and Edward I and the conquest of Wales and Scotland. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, that is is a gift for the novelist in a way. Oh, yeah. Because there's a tremendous amount of um, information about the reign of Henry III. I mean, we just had the second volume of David Carpenter's huge biography mm. of Henry III, which is just sort of exhaustive. And actually, I'm, I was glad it came out when it did because I could I could quickly check that I hadn't made too many terrible mistakes um, <laughs> as of writing the the sequels to battle song but um yeah i mean there's there's a huge amount of information about henry third's reign i mean it was keeping records of everything we have all of the of the patent roles all of the library roles everything else mm. everything written down um and scholars have really been able to go through all of this stuff and and pick out all of the details of royal administration and where everybody was going and who was doing what in a way that i don't think they can do for for, for previous reigns they can do it for subsequent ones but that's really the point where mm. this this sort of the the recording of royal administration really picks up so for a, a novelist it's great because there's tremendous amount of information there which nobody's really done very much with in terms of, of fiction mm. i just get obsessed yeah. with that kind of stuff anyway i can spend ages just pouring through um you know old, old records and trying to work out who was going where with whom and and you know what they were having for dinner um, all that kind of stuff. um so in that respect I'm, i i thought it was fantastic but i can see why i don't know for uh, uh, other kinds of novelists maybe they wouldn't 
find um, the space to, to move around so much in, in, in imaginative terms. Anyway, I think when you've got something like the Wars of the Roses, where they're spread over much, a much longer period and you've got a lot more kind of movement, um, maybe that's, that's preferable. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think uh, it is a different, it's, as I said, it's a different canvas. It's a much broader canvas. Um, and it gives you, you plenty of scope. Now, you said earlier about the characters having to make decisions about who they should fight for. You decided <laughs> that your 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 heroes, as it were, would fight for Simon de Montfort. What, what made you decide that? Um, yeah, it's a funny question, isn't it? I remember when I, I first uh, announced on, I think it was Facebook or something, that I was writing about uh, de Montfort and the Barons War and one of the first questions that somebody asked was which side are you going to be on <laughs> which um, I'd never really considered I think partly because of the kind of person I am I always tend to to favor the the rebels you know I'm always on the side of the people who are who are sort of rising up against authority rather than the people who are trying to to suppress the revolt you know but I think also um, in terms of of drama and putting together a dramatic story it's always a good idea if your protagonist is is close to the point of change, mm. close to the people who are mm. trying to make things happen rather than people who are trying to stop things from happening, if you like. Um, so in that respect, yeah. it, I think it was always going to be Simon de Montfort's side. Um, that was always going to be the, the way things were going to go. But of course, the thing is about this conflict is that people did change sides, sometimes more than once. I mean, most famously, you've got Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, who... I mean, if anybody won the Second Barons' War, it was probably him at the end of the day, more than than Edward and, and King Henry. I mean, it was it was Gilbert de Clare who managed to force his will at the age of, I think, 21 or 22. Mm. He forced his will on the entire nation. So he was <laughs> he was the winner. But he, he changed size twice. So there was a lot of um, movement in terms of allegiance. There was a lot of movement in terms of of who was supporting whom, who was fighting where. So I don't know, this is, is it, it's not an easy question, this what side are you on? And this must have been a question that everyone was asking themselves at the time as well. And plenty of people were kind of hanging back and yeah. waiting to see which way things went. So when I was coming up with, with my characters and my story, I was asking myself these questions as well. I mean, partly in a, in a practical way, thinking where would, where would the story best go? You know which um, which sort of allegiance would best suit my narrative, but also thinking about the characters I was writing about because I've got two real characters in in Battle Song and on into Warcry. Uh, you've got the the protagonist Adam de Norton, who's this uh, young squire who wants to become a knight, and then there's his his mentor Robert de Dunstanville, who's a an older, very cynical knight who's um, had his lands taken away. Um, after a, a, a charge of um, murder. Um, and he has a, quite a different view of the kingdom, quite a different view of the political situation, and is much more pragmatic and ruthless in his approach to what would best suit him. So you've got these two characters with their quite different ways of looking at the situation in the kingdom, and they're quite different ways of deciding uh, which side they're going to follow and uh, which side, yeah, which way their their allegiances should go. Yeah, I do like the way they do continue to question which side they should be on throughout, because you know that anybody choosing a side at that time would be thinking, have I chosen right? Should I sit back 
and ride this one out and pretend I haven't received the summons or should I, am I on the right side? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, probably the way that that a lot of people find themselves thinking in, in any time of great change and violence and any time of revolutionary mm. change. I mean, there are always going to be some people who are the real zealots, mm. who are the true believers, whose ideas are fixed. But you would imagine that the majority of people are going to find themselves somewhere in the middle, constantly having to ask, am I doing the right yeah. thing here? Am I following the right people? Uh, is what I'm doing justified? Or am I sort of... Um, I don't know, um, aiding in the creation of some form of tyranny. I mean, in terms of uh, my characters, what really uh, throws Adam's allegiances into doubt is when he witnesses this great explosion of violence against the Jewish community in London, which is done mm. by de Montfort's supporters. I mean, I, mm. whether de Montfort himself was there or not, it seems he wasn't, but nobody can really work out where he might have been. So. He's sort of just out of the picture conveniently and his supporters who were always the ones who seem to be doing this violence it's, it's weird he never seems to be around he's always just you know stepped outside for a moment and while he's uh, gone his supporters suddenly unleashed this, this this terrible violence against the jewish community uh, which they did um in london in uh, in holy week of 1264 um or, or actually the week before that um and so this is what adam witnesses and this is what causes him to really question the path that he's chosen, really question, you know, the people alongside whom he is fighting in this war, which he believed was a war for justice and a war for honor and for changing the country for the better. And yet he's forced to confront the real uh, darkness and the, the most bloody impulses behind what's driving this conflict. So uh, yeah, that, that questioning is there all the way through it. And really, I hopefully at least, builds more and more as the books go on um, and as he's uh, as Adam's forced to uh, recognize more and more uh, what it is exactly that's happening around him. I think it's this whole idea isn't it about our heroes that they can't have any flaws and everybody does you know there's, so, there's something you don't like about every single person one little attribute to them that you don't agree with and it's this idea that in literature and in the cinema and in the movies, the heroes have to be perfect, but they never are. It's just not the way people are made. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think um, I, I think we should be very dubious about the idea of of spotless heroes. Um, I mean, I've always been drawn to people who are much more conflicted, um, people who are much more multifaceted, and I think that's the way we tend to regard historical characters nowadays we don't I think tend to look back into no. the past and see people as being one-dimensional see people mm -hmm. as being just sort of mm -hmm. good or bad um, and that's the right way to look at it I mean I think back in the 19th century yep. people had a very different idea about Simon de Montfort for example right mm -hmm. into the the earlier 20th century as well those pesky Victorians I've mentioned them before <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. You say a lot of bad things about the Victorians. I mean, I I um I quite like some some Victorian history. I mean, if you read it with an open mind, um, yes. it's it's tremendously <laughs> bracing sometimes. Their 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 yeah. tremendous moral certainty that they have about things. Yeah. But um, yeah. In, in terms of of Simon de Montfort, nowadays I think he tends to be yeah. regarded in a far more negative light, uh, mainly yeah. because of his attitude towards the Jews, mainly because of his religious piety. But I mean, even that is possibly 
um, unfair because mm -hmm. these attitudes are widely shared. Um, both, you know, King Henry and, of course, Edward, when he became king, terrible towards the Jews. I mean, Henry presided over the, the trial and execution of, of a large number of Jews accused of killing a, a, a Christian boy in Lincoln, a, you yeah. know, little St. Hugh of Lincoln, I think, in 1255. And he executed these people mm. knowing that they were almost certainly innocent. So, I mean, Henry wasn't innocent of this. Edward certainly wasn't innocent of this. So perhaps to hold up Simon de Montfort to a, to a higher standard is, is maybe unfair. But at the same time, we can't regard these people as being simply praiseworthy characters. Um, and I'm fairly sure the people at the time didn't either. Mm, mm, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> so Battlesome is the first one. The way I remember it, I, I was getting confused between Battlesome and Warcry. And then I remembered about the Song of Lewis, because I wrote about the Battle of Lewis in uh, Defenders of the Norman Crown. And there's this Song of Lewis that heavily criticises John de Warren, the sixth earl. So that's how I'm remembering the order of the books now, because Battle Song, Song of Lewis. So that builds up to the Battle of Lewis in 1264, which Simon won. I'm not, I don't think that's giving a spoiler if anyone hasn't read the book yet. <laughs> but did Simon win it or did Edward lose it? Because there's this thing where Edward is a little too enthusiastic at going into battle and then decides to chase the Londoners practically all the way back to London before he realises he's really screwed up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Simon did win the battle. I think there's there's no doubt about that. Well, even then, it wasn't really a, a straightforward victory. I mean, really, it was, you get this, uh, this treaty at the end of it, the Mies of Lewis, which is really more of a truce. I mean, Simon ends up in control of the kingdom, but he's forced to concede an awful lot. He's forced to grant freedom to all the marcher barons and send them back to their lands with this kind of rather vague promise that they'll come back and surrender themselves to, to justice and, and stand trial before parliament. I don't know if anyone actually believed that was going to happen, but it was, um, it was certainly a, a victory in the short term, although it stored up an awful lot of problems for the future. I suppose Simon himself, of course, would say that God had won the battle because, of course, he was a tremendously pious man, as as most people were in those days. I mean, I think we overlook um, or rather underestimate the extent to which Christianity was informing most of what was going on around that period. And in terms of Lewis, certainly, it was intended to be a trial by combat. Uh, Simon yeah. had beforehand marked himself and all of his soldiers with the sign of the cross. Um, they'd all lain down, face down on the ground with their arms outspread while the Bishop of Worcester uh, pronounced a blessing over them, basically just pronouncing them as crocis ignati. You know, they had become crusaders. This was now a holy war against uh, the unjust king. So they placed themselves in the hands of God. They, was, they said, God will decide the outcome here. And so I think um, for most of them in the immediate elation of, of victory, they would have they would have given the victory to God. And there were people who, who said afterwards that they had seen heavenly figures appearing on the battlefield. Even one of the, the defeated enemies, Henry de Percy, who'd fallen on the king's side, um, they were saying that they'd seen uh, St. George and St. Thomas Becket appearing with Montfort's army riding onto the battlefield with banners. So, I mean, uh, which might have been a, a convenient get out for the royalist side. You know, it's not surprisingly lost. But um, I, I think certainly uh, because it was such an unlikely victory, the Montfort side was so outnumbered. You know, they'd managed to, they did this very clever night march, which meant that they managed to claim the, the high ground above Lewis itself. But in terms of numbers, I mean, numbers are always a little bit hard to determine, but um, 
Montfort seems to have had probably only about a third of the numbers that were on the king's side. And also his men were so uh, young by comparison. They were tremendously inexperienced. Uh, most of his troops were pretty untried. His barons, his leading knights, these were men in their, in their teens sometimes or early 20s. Gilbert declared his biggest supporter was 21 at the time of, of the battle. Virtually none of them had ever seen a battle before. They'd never really been in conflict. They'd been in tournaments. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the king's side, you had the Earl of Pembroke, you had the Earl of Surrey, you had the Earl of Hereford, you had the big Scottish barons, you had Robert Bruce. Uh, you know, all of these people who'd been fighting for the king, some of them were in their 50s. They'd been fighting for decades. They really knew about warfare. And then you had... Lord Edward, you know, supposedly the, the best knight in the world, even if he said so himself, <laughs> you know, leading this great division on, on the right flank of the king's army. And as you say, this is the uh, this is really what went on with the king's plan, that, that perhaps they were overconfident. And Edward led this enormous cavalry charge on the right into the, the London militia, who he hated for reasons of his own, and then went charging off, off the battlefield. I mean, I think that tends to be held against him, but I think it's very difficult to control that kind of thing. I mean, the 13th century, as I said before, this is really the apogee of, of mounted warfare. Mm. This is knights charging it against each other in huge formations, very little use of infantry once it gets to a, an actual field battle, because knights trained for war in the tournaments these mm -hmm. big melees where you get lines of knights they charge against each other they all clash with lances that's how they trained to fight that's how they wanted to fight and because the only people who could decide to have a battle were the knights themselves once it came to that point that's how they're going to do it they're going to do these big cavalry charges and this big swirling melee and once that sort of thing gets started it's quite difficult to control once you know the trumpets blow and everybody starts galloping so you've got edward's lot over on on the right flank once they start going it's going to be very hard for him to pull them around and i mean which he could have done with a bit more control on the battlefield if he just swung them around to the left he could have crushed them on board, but they didn't and so obviously on simon's side they're going to say well that was that was god um <laughs> giving us the victory because uh, we have justice on our side and as you mentioned the the song of lewis this tremendous source on the battle itself written by probably an eyewitness or somebody who was around at the same uh, around at, the, at that time talks about the battle in tremendously religious terms um, mm -hmm. that sort of real biblical sensibility that god is taking a hand in human affairs that simon de montfort is the agent of of divine justice he's going to reform the kingdom he's going to drive out the king's bad counselors um and all of these sort of various figures that <laughs> that he mentioned when I mean, you mentioned john de warren who's who's a fascinating character and and such a long lasting character as well he goes all the way through when i was just um reading about the battle of falkirk john de warren is still there mm. 69 or something was he yeah it was, i think it's 1304 he dies or something around there mm, he yeah. was there forever <laughs> yes and the the, uh, the tremendous story about him when they're, they're doing the the quororonto yes um things are going around the country trying to work out you know what what rights everyone has to their land and this craggy old guy pulls this sword off the wall and says you know yep. my, my ancestors came here with william the bastard and this is the sword they used yep. This was their warrant and it's my warrant now, you know. You know, that that kind of stuff really gives you a sense of the humanity of the people that were involved. You know, mm -hmm. they aren't just just names. They become these real personalities. And yeah, tremendously mm -hmm. forceful, probably quite unpleasant personalities a lot of the time. Yeah, I think there's a there's a kind of theme that goes through rebellions over the centuries, really. 
And that is, you have a you have a, a leading rebel who wins. Winning is probably the worst thing they could do because they then have to decide what the heck do we do now? I mean, it, it happened with Simon de Montfort. You, you mentioned that he was effectively the ruler of the country after after Lewis. It happened with the Earl of Warwick in Edward IV's reign. And it happened in the civil wars at the end of the civil war as well. Once you've won, what the heck do you do? And if you stop short of killing the king, which obviously Simon de Montfort did, then is it not inevitable that that king will come back and bite you? Will that the fight will will be renewed? Yeah, um, I think this is it's it's a developing thing, isn't it? In uh, in English history throughout this period, I mean, I think in the 13th century, the idea of killing the king was still um, very far off. I don't think anyone would even have contemplated that. By the time mm. you get to the 14th century, then it's a bit more of a possibility. And then, you know, once you're into the 15th century, well, okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, and then you get to the 17th century and they're doing it in public. You know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think in, in terms of Simon de Montfort, yeah, I... It's one of those great historical questions, you know, what was he intending to do after Lewis? I, I think probably he was making it up as he went along. I don't think he really expected the kingdom to fall into his hands in the way that it did. Obviously, he, he sort of brassed it out quite effectively um, with the help of God um, and, and his, uh, his uh, friends in the church um, who were able to, to quickly put together a justification for all of this. But I think, yeah, it was... It would be hard to see how it could have worked out, because I think the, the trouble is that Simon de Montfort, although he's portrayed nowadays as this great reformer um, and the, the father of parliament and all that kind of thing, he was still an incredibly ambitious and powerful 13th century magnate. And he behaved in the way that, that powerful 13th century magnates behaved. He wasn't a Democrat. He would have found that idea just hideous and, and repulsive. <laughs> and so when once he had all the power, what he did was grant himself as much authority as he possibly could. He enriched his family. He enriched his sons. He granted huge tracts of land, great honours and properties to his, to his sons. And you look back and you think, how could he not have imagined that that was going to outrage all of his supporters? This is precisely the stuff that they were supposed to have been fighting against. Precisely this kind of nepotism and this kind of, yeah, kind of self-rule, really. So um, it's hard to see how it how it could have gone well. I mean, I think maybe Simon was was aiming to put his own son Henry on the throne. That's a, that's a bit of an outside possibility. I mean, Henry was uh, the grandson of King John, so he had a, a claim to the throne. But then, of course, you'd have to have somehow got rid of not only King Henry but also Edward and Edmund, because Henry had two adult sons at this point, both heirs to the throne. And Henry's brother Richard and his sons. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so it, it would have been it would have been tricky. I mean, even keeping them all captive, I think, was was quite difficult. Simon was keeping Edward in jail. He was also keeping uh, Richard of Cornwall in jail. He was towing Henry around the country after him, and there are these these tremendous. Uh, accounts in the sources of him sort of leading Henry around on a chain, figuratively speaking, um, and treating him like a prisoner and sort of making him sign all of these documents or put a seal to all of these documents and agree to all these these rulings. I mean, it was it must have been, well, tremendously exciting, I would think, but also 
intensely nerve-wracking. I mean, we must imagine that Simon de Montfort had nerves of steel to be able to, yeah. to hold on to all of it. And there's an old um, uh, thing from uh, one of the Roman emperors who said that trying to control Rome was like trying to hold a wolf by the ears. Trying to control England at this point must have been like trying to hold a, a number of wolves by the ears while another one sort of gnaws on your arm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it would have been it would have been very difficult, I would think, to avoid another explosion of civil war, particularly once Gilbert de Clare had turned against de Montfort, allied himself with the Marcher Lords. All of Edward's old supporters in, in France had started uh, appearing in, in the west of Wales and raising troops there. I mean, it was really just the countdown to disaster. But, you know, he could have pulled it off, maybe, if things had been different. Did Simon believe his own height? <laughs> I think he came to. Um, one of the weird things about it was that initially Simon de Montfort was a big friend of, uh, of the king. Um, and he was a, a foreign adventurer. I mean, he was he was French. Um, he'd come over to England, established himself in the honour of Leicester, became the Earl of Leicester, um, and really sort of worked his way into the inner circles of royal power. But initially, he was a strong supporter of the king. And it was only once he saw his own advantage lying in rebellion that he went over to the rebels. So he started out as this very pragmatic, slightly mercurial character. But I think he did come to believe his own hype. He did come to believe, particularly after Lewis, that he was an agent of the Lord, you know, that he was doing God's work here and that, uh, mm. you know, um, this was this was all sort of divinely mandated. Um, he did start wearing a hair shirt. We don't exactly know when he did that, but this is obviously something that you don't do um, without really believing in it because it's not a public gesture of humility. It's it's secret. You don't, no one knows you're wearing it. He also apparently took a vow of chastity as did his wife, Countess Eleanor. So, you know, this is, this is serious stuff. You know, he really did believe in what he was doing. Um, he was genuinely pious. Whether he'd become that way after after a certain amount of time, I don't think anyone can can tell. But I think certainly in the period between Lewis and Evesham, you can kind of see him becoming more and more the character that, that other people might imagine that he was. It's almost like he was growing in stature, they, the way that people were placing their hopes in him. Mm. People were believing in him kind of almost against their own instincts must have made him feel that what he was doing was right and to feel that maybe somehow or other he could pull this off. Maybe God was going to, you know, <laughs> give him the ultimate victory that he wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that that does happen at times in history, that someone is not exactly, they're not a reluctant leader, but they're not too sure where they're going. And then everyone says, oh, well, you're doing tremendously well. And they they start to grow almost and feel it that... Uh, yeah, I am doing tremendously well. This must be a good thing. <laughs> well, there are, yeah, there are figures uh, in our own time, shall we say, that you could look at who, who've obviously become rather intoxicated with um, <laughs> with the, the vision that they're seeing reflected back on them from uh, from their friends. I mean, they're, they're sort of slightly um, slightly less recent. But you could look at someone like Tony Blair, who um, initially seems to have been uh, rather pragmatic. Got in and thought, oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, suddenly, power has fallen into my hands, and then, and then, as time went on, became more and more convinced of this mission. Mm. Obviously, the catalyst for Simon's downfall, in a way, is is Lord Edward, uh, who's described a, as a leopard, a bit like a caged animal at times. Uh, he comes across a, on the pages of history, obviously, as a a very, very strong individual. Do you think Simon underestimated him or did he know him well enough not to, to do so? 
I think with the benefit of hindsight, he certainly did underestimate him. Yeah, I mean, the um, the leopard description is is great. It's from the Song of Lewis that, that Sharon mentioned earlier on. Um, and the writer says, to which animal shall we compare Edward? We can compare him to a leopard because he says he is uh, a lion by fierceness, but a pard by cunning. And a pard is this sort of like kind of mythological creature. It's the offspring of, um, of, a, of a lion and a mythological devil cat, I think. But these, the, it, it's supposed to be a hybrid creature and so therefore inherently deceitful and treacherous. And Edward had demonstrated several times his abilities to um, to break promises, uh, to go against treaties, to sort of, you know, suddenly one leap he was free type <laughs> type escapes. You know, so he was he was definitely a, a, a dangerous, ruthless mm-hmm. individual. And so this description of, of leopard fits in well. I mean, I don't know how widely that was used. I, I'm not the only person to have done this, but uh, calling Edward the leopard is, I mean, perhaps the Song of Lewis is the only time it was ever used. Although there is, um, there's a, a another story called the, the story of Folk Fitzwarren, who was this 13th century mm. um, knightly adventurer, really. And in that, King John is described as a leopard, interestingly. So whether or not the Folk Fitzwarren story was written down sort of after the Song of Lewis and they just kept the analogy, or whether this was a common thing to describe ruthless members of, of you know, what we now call the Plantagenets because of the royal heraldry, perhaps. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a good description for Edward. What was really the catalyst for the second part of, of the Barons' War, the, the campaign that led up to Evesham, was Edward's escape from captivity. So... After Lewis, Montfort keeps Edward under close confinement, initially as a sort of, you know, uh, fairly easy prisoner. Later on, he sticks him in Wallingford Castle and some of his friends actually try to, to um, they besiege Wallingford Castle to try and liberate him. And the Castellan took Edward up onto the, onto the battlements and threatened to put him in a mangonel and throw him over the walls if his friends wanted him that badly. They, they got Edward to stand there and say, no, look, really, he, he is... He is uh, <laughs> He is quite genuine here. He is going to throw me over the walls, whereupon all of his friends went away. I mean, this is an entire army of knights. It's quite an extraordinary situation. And Edward's thinking, I'll remember this <laughs> to the Gastelan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you get the impression that Edward's remembering an awful yeah. lot. I mean, it's almost like he's got a little memo book sort of tucked inside yep. his circle. He's like, right, that's another thing. Um, so eventually they're at, they're at Hereford. Monfort has been uh, drawn over to Hereford to counter the alliance of the March of Barons and, and Gilbert de Clare. And Edward stages this extraordinary escape from Hereford, which is um, it's so dramatic that, that every chronicler writing about it has to give a lengthy description of it, which was actually quite, um, quite difficult because they're all slightly different, of course, as these things tend to be. So when I was writing this scene, which I knew was going to be um, one of the big dramatic scenes in in the second book, War Cry, the sort of inciting incident, if you like, that that kicks off this this uh, cycle of conflict. I wanted to describe this escape of Edward from Hereford, whereby I mean it's quite well known, so I'll I'll just sort of sketch it out now. He was given uh, leave to go outside of Hereford and exercise horses on these these fields outside the town, this area called Widmarsh Meadows. So he went out there with his with his guards who had become, you get the impression by this point, quite close to him, rather friendly with him. One of them, Thomas de Clare, was the younger brother of uh, Gilbert de Clare. Um, but then there were some others as well, as Robert de Ross, who's a big uh, northern baron. He seems to have been the kind of the commander of the guard. 
And they, they took these horses out to exercise them because obviously you've got these very expensive war horses. They need to be exercised regularly. You keep them in the stables, they'll lose condition. So there's a reason for this. And of course, Edward being the son of the king, they're not going to exactly keep him in a, chained up in a cell. But there's an awful lot of parole here. There's an awful lot of the sense of chivalric behavior and, you know, knights keeping to their promises. You would think they would have known by that point that <laughs> Edward was a, was a tricky individual. So what he does is he rides each of these horses one by one. And I think he's actually, they're, they're mm -hmm. running horse races. He's not just jumping onto each horse individually. He's uh, uh, one of the chroniclers says, um, he says they should race for the mastery. So they're going to test basically who's got the best horse, who's the best rider. So they're out there riding up and down these meadows for most of the morning. And he exhausts all of the horses, but he keeps one of them back, which has been given to him as a president. And um, I've described it in, in, the, in the scene in the book that uh, he pretends there's something the matter with this horse, that it's a little too high spirited. Maybe it's sort of sick. Maybe it's got a bit of colic or something. Um, this is all a ruse. Once he's exhausted all of these other horses, of course, he leaps onto this additional one and goes racing off into the distance. And uh, coming over the hill are um, a bunch of his March of Baron supporters in full armor with basically an army accompanying him mm. to the great horror of his guards uh, who then mm. have to go back to Hereford and explain to Simon de Montfort how they have let the most important prisoner in, in England um, out, of their, out of their keeping. And um, de Montfort was apparently uh, most upset about this and particularly because he had believed that Thomas de Clare was, was a great friend of his. And uh, he said something like this, this deceiving serpent has, has struck me in the breast. You would imagine at that point that Simon would have guessed things were going badly wrong. <laughs> very much overestimated Edward's honesty, I think, overestimated his um, his sense of, of kind of knightly virtue and uh, his ability to keep to his to his parole and behave himself. I think I can understand Edward, though. You can understand, you know, you're keeping me in captivity. I have a duty to the country to make sure that I am free and able to help the people. I am the prince. You're just a lord. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, and you get this sense as well that, that Edward was, even though Simon de Montfort was his uncle and they had been actually very close, yeah. you get the impression that, that Edward is building up this tremendous store of resentment and hatred mm -hmm. against de Montfort. One of the sources, I can't remember which one it was, but I was having to, a lot of these sources have not been translated into English. So I was having to pick through them in Latin and kind of do my own very rough translation. But there's one of them, and I think it's uh, Walter of Giesborough, but it might be um, Rishang or something. He describes Edward's escape from Hereford and then describes him arriving at, um, I think it's Ludlow, and meeting these marcher barons. And he suddenly realizes that he's been liberated. And it says his his joy was, was so tremendous. And he cried out that he has been liberated from the throat of that cursed dragon. Mm. You get from that tremendous sense of, right, now the boot's on the other foot. You know, now I'm going to get my my revenge. In fact, the uh, my original title for, for book two was Leopard's Malice. Um, but eventually my editors decided that Warcry didn't sound like it was about safaris. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. The Battle of Evesham was going to be the climax of the second book. That battle, it has so many elements. 
Um, yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was a bit of a, a bit of a set piece. That whole thing, and I knew it was going to involve a lot of work because I wanted to get it right. And it's a very particular battle. And one of the advantages of this period that the two big battles, um, Lewis and Evesham, are both quite well known. We know where they happened, which is sort of fairly mm. rare, as you know, for for medieval battles and ancient battles as well. We know where they happened. We know pretty much the ground that they were fought over. There are differences about exactly where it was. Sort of, you know few hundred yards in this direction or that direction um, and these sites still exist today so one of the, the the first things that I did obviously with both of these battles is to go to first Lewis and then Evesham and to walk the ground and I don't know if you know the situation of Evesham but it's it's in a, a quite tight bend of the river a u-shaped mm. bend of the river and the town and the abbey are down at the bottom end um, mm. sort of in, in the sort of uh, the thicker part of the curve the battle itself happened really in the neck of that river bend, the neck of that U-shape. And it's slightly less than a mile across and mostly taken up with an area of high ground called Green Hill. So you can go to Evesham today, you can stand down by the old abbey precinct, the abbey's gone now, but there's, the, the remains of it are still there. And you can walk up the main street of the town, which follows the same route as the main street of, of medieval Evesham. And it's about a mile. You walk out of town and it's a sort of steady uphill uh, walk past where the station is now and you get up onto onto green hill and it's open country it's fields now um, but you can actually get into the open ground to the left of the road there's a, a place called uh, battle well which is supposedly where simon de montfort was killed um spoiler alert you know he did uh, <laughs> he lost this battle um he was he was supposedly killed there and after his death supposedly this uh, this well sprang up or, or spring actually sprang up which had miraculous properties by this point people were talking of him as a saint you know he died as a martyr so you can still go up there today you can still visit this what's left of this spring it's just a little sort of grassy hollow and you can walk around the whole area of the battlefield and get a real sense of the topography and it's quite a small it's quite a confined area because it's all sort of in the bend of this river so that was one of the first things i did was to go there and just to walk around and to look at the landscape and to think how would this have panned out and then of course you go back and you read all the original accounts and there are about uh, 12 i think accounts that i found of this battle and they all give a similar kind of description of what was happening and most of them are written by monks and most of them are written well some of them at least are written by monks who believed that simon de montfort was possibly a saint and a martyr so they tend to have a slight air of, of the stations of the cross about them uh, you know, they always start off in the morning and uh, with the appearance of Lord Edward's army up on the hill above Evesham and de Montfort and his men by the, at this point are down in the abbey. And the way they describe it, it feels almost like uh, de Montfort kind of looks up and sees Golgotha and he's like, right, OK, here we go. And he sort of makes this progress through the town and up onto the hill, stopping from time to time to turn and address his followers and say sort of, you know, deathless words which of course the monks were all ready to, to note down and record for posterity. So that gives you a, a kind of chronology of what was happening. But of course, as I'm describing it, I have to make it seem like it's an ongoing moment. I have to put the reader right into the middle of the scene and show it through the eyes of people that were involved in it, who don't know that this is, you know, the final fall of Simon de Montfort about to happen, you know, who think that there is a possibility that they could win this, perhaps, because I don't believe 
that well whatever Simon de Montfort himself might have might have thought I don't believe that everyone following him thought that they were going to be martyred up on the hill there was a moment in the battle itself which involved again a massive cavalry charge this time uphill out of Evesham by de Montfort's side against Edward's forces Edward Gilbert de Clare and uh, Roger Mortimer who'd arrayed themselves up on the hillside above Evesham so de Montfort's men charge up the hill directly at the center of uh, Edward's line. And there's a point in the battle where they seem to drive back the royalist center. Um, it's a description in, I think it's uh, Robert of Gloucester's verse chronicle. And he describes this moment where the center of the royal line actually collapses and they're, they're falling back in a rout. And one of the royalist captains, this guy Warren de Bassingbourne, is one of these figures who just appears all the way through this conflict. He's always sort of popping up on the royalist side, obviously one of the most capable soldiers. He seems to have been at Lewis as well. And uh, Robert of Gloucester has him turning to these fleeing men around him and saying, remember your shame at Lewis. Remember how vilely you were brought to ground turn and fight. Um, and he manages to do this. He actually rallies the, the royalist route and they managed to sort of form their line again. And possibly this was a deliberate tactic by Edward, the, the center falling back, although that's a very hard thing to do, obviously, particularly in mounted warfare. But what was happening as the royalist center was giving way is that the two wings commanded by Gilbert de Clare and Roger Mortimer were swinging around to envelop de Montfort on, on each side. And you've got these descriptions in the uh, the original accounts of de Montfort's army being engulfed and completely surrounded by this overwhelming force of uh, of Edward's troops, and at that point, of course, the battle turns into a massacre. And I think it's again Robert of Gloucester who says uh, he calls it the murder of Evesham for battle. It was none, and and this tremendously bloody scene results. Edward's death squad. Is it the first time ever that a set of knights are tasked with actually finding the leader on the other side and killing him? We know about that because of an account that was only discovered in 2000, um, written on the back of another manuscript in the, the College of Arms. And it's a very vivid, very detailed description of the battle. Um, I'm not sure who actually does this, whether it's Gilbert de Clare or Edward or Roger Mortimer, but they appoint particular men to seek out Simon de Montfort in the battle and make sure that he dies. Um, so this, this sort of death squad, as people tend to call them. Um, it's interesting, actually, that there's only one named member of this squad that we know of, um, who's a guy called William de Maltravers, who was a Gloucestershire knight, seems to have been a member of Gilbert de Clare's uh, retinue, uh, one of his household knights, perhaps. He's the only one that we know that was a part of this. And he was, of course, with Gilbert de Clare, on de Montfort's side at the Battle of Lewis the year before. So there is a, a slight possibility, I think, that the members of this death squad were particularly selected to prove their allegiance, to say, well, you were on de Montfort's <laughs> side last year. Let's see whose side you're on now. It's your job to go in there and actually finish him off. And of course, once they killed him, they then dismembered him in this gruesome way, mm. just hacked off his limbs and cut off his genitals and all this sort of thing. Um, really making sure that, that everyone knew that he was dead. And then they paraded around with, with bits of his body on, on, a, on a stick, sent parts of his body to various parts of the country, which inadvertently contributed to a cult of relics. Because, of course, after the battle, when people were saying that uh, Simon de Montfort was a saint, suddenly you've got bits of him all over the country and, you know, his severed hand floating in the air above the congregation as at the, uh, the elevation of the host. And, uh, you know, his severed foot was up in Anik doing miracles up there. 
So, uh, so you know, it, it slightly backfired on them. I think the the whole the whole dismemberment thing. They're trying to kind of erase the memory of the guy, and instead they've elevated him to this uh, this uh, sort of martyr cult. I don't know if there are examples of this happening beforehand. It might well have been, but it was definitely quite a shock at the time. Um, there are people right across Europe writing about this, and even decades later, there's um, a chronicler in um, in Tyre over in in Palestine of the Holy Land. And he describes this, I think, 20 years later as something that he's heard about. But he, he claims that de Montfort was captured alive in the battle and then killed in the night and then cut to pieces as if he had been killed in the battle, which is just an extraordinary little like medieval conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, at Evesham, Henry III was still in the possession of, of Simon de Montfort. And he brought him to the battlefield. I always think this is a bit of a risky strategy, actually, for various reasons. But he brought him to the battlefield just in plain armour. He wasn't wearing a crown or anything. Do you think he was setting him up to be killed accidentally, as it were? Or... Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the theories that people um, people sort of uh, bandy about. I mean, I don't know. I think the thing is, that at that point, King Henry was de Montfort's sole source of legitimacy. He was the legitimacy of his of his regime. If he lost possession of the king, then everything was over. He was just a rebel. He had no ability to to issue orders, no ability to summon troops. I and mean, up until that point, he was still summoning the, the the Shire levies in the name of the king to fight for him against Edward, which is a bizarre situation. I mean, there are there are royal rulings from the period between Lewis and Evesham that describe the men who fought for the king at Lewis as being rebels. So it's tremendously confusing. Uh, but yeah, if if Simon had lost possession of the king, then all of that would be gone. So up until this point, he's been carrying Henry around with him, sort of leading him around, uh, leading him and his household, of course, and all of his all of his clerks and all of his chaplains and all of his sergeants at arms and everything else and the whole machinery of royal government, you know, potentially a couple of hundred people leading him around the place wherever he goes and he's not going to let him out of his sight and so when he finds himself in in Evesham down in Evesham Abbey on the morning of the battle realizes he's going to have to somehow break through Edward's army in order to link up with his son Simon Jr who was supposed to be coming to reinforce him he had to take Henry with him he couldn't leave him anywhere and he couldn't take him with him in his full royal regalia, because anyone would be able to capture him at that point. And if they captured him, that was that was it over. So I think this odd tactic of dressing him in plain armor, or even putting him in uh, de Montfort's own livery, like he was a member of his own household, was just a way of almost camouflaging him right in the center of their retinue, and somehow just smuggle him out through the royal lines. Um, and, you know, if the battle went well, he would still be in their possession. And there's this, Obviously, in the, the descriptions of the time, you get these tremendously amusing, slightly pathetic descriptions of King Henry in the middle of this battle, uh, calling out to everyone around him, I'm, I'm the king, I'm your old king, don't kill me. He says, I'm too old to fight, which is uh, kind of ironic because Henry himself was fighting the year before that at the Battle of Lewis, right in the press of the melee, had three horses killed under him, which doesn't happen unless you're really in the thick of it. So I think this this sort of idea that he'd suddenly turned into this sort of antiquated figure being led around on a horse is slightly Henry's own own <laughs> deciding that that's the role he's going to play. 
But um, yeah, this is what he did. And he was he was actually injured in the battle. He was hit by a, a spear or a javelin or something. And it was only when he pulled off his helmet and started shouting to the people around him that yeah. one or other of the royalist knights, you know, uh, opinions are divided as to who it was, recognized him and led him from, from the battlefield. <laughs> and at that point, of course, you know, even if Simon was still alive at that point, his, uh, his rule was at an end because the king had been taken. <laughs> oh, sorry, I just—I was just absorbing all that. That's a brilliant description of it. I've always seen it before as being Simon trying to um, get Henry killed, basically, <laughs> you know, dress him as a plain knight and let everybody else have at him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if um, yeah, if, if Henry had been killed and Edward had been killed, then you know the 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 path to the throne was was a little bit shorter. He'd still have had to have got rid of Edmund, uh, the king's second son. So yeah, it would have been risky. But, I mean, there's another possibility that that maybe de Montfort eventually wanted to set Edward up as the king. He wanted to just depose Henry altogether because maybe he thought that Edward would uh, would be more likely to give him what he wanted, mm. to give him the kind of reforms yeah. that he wanted, which ironically was what Edward ended up doing, but it took until 1297 for it to actually happen. So I don't know. I, I think probably that would have been extremely wishful thinking in, in on Simon's part. The other interesting things about this whole conflict is that it's really a, a war of fathers and sons. You can see mm. this huge generational split. I mean, obviously, you've got Henry and his son, Edward. You've got Simon and his sons, um, Henry, Simon and Guy. But also most of the combatants seem to fall into one or other of these of these uh, these two generations. You know, you've got the older generation, the fathers, and then you've got this younger generation who initially were following de Montfort. And they tend to be the sons of the big magnates, often the big magnates have only just died. So you've got these very young men taking over extraordinary amounts of, of land and wealth and these huge retinues at a comparatively young age. I mean, if you look at the battlefield of Lewis, you know, Montfort's side was mostly in their early 20s. I often think this is one of the, the reasons why this war was so vicious, was that most of the people involved in it were basically just university age kids. They were these, these young men of kind of 20 or 21 on, on powerful war horses in expensive armor careering around the place. It's not surprising that things became so violent, really. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of Edward, you can definitely see that he might have looked at mm. Simon de Montfort and seen him as a kind of father figure, really. Henry and, and Edward often had their fallings out. But there might have been a point probably around sort of 1260-ish where Edward might have thought, yeah, okay, you know, let's um, let, let's ally myself with de Montfort. But you can understand where it comes from, because Edward idolised him at one stage um, before the wars. Edward saw Simon as a bit of a hero, and it's only as as he grew up, grew older, a little older, and realised what Simon was up to, that he went back to his dad sort of thing. So, Ian, we've had Battle Song. We've had War Cry. Is there another one? I've um, I've recently uh, completed and sent to my editor the, the the third book, which picks up really directly from the end of Warcry. This is it's about the period after Evesham, because the death of Simon de Montfort was not the end of this conflict. Um, it went on for a, a, a long period after that. It was about an eighteen month period that the hostilities continued, but they became a lot more uh, complicated. Um, it wasn't a matter of two sides fighting big battles. It was. There was a lot of guerrilla war. There was a lot of um, 
rebellion breaking out in various different parts of the of the kingdom but also there was this big siege at kenilworth probably not the longest siege in english history but certainly the greatest certainly the one that was that was carried through with the greatest um, amount of force so that's the centerpiece for this third book the ongoing adventures of adam de norton in the period after evesham um, and uh, I won't say anything more about it at the moment because uh, I don't want to give away too much of, of what it involves. But uh, it was certainly interesting to put together because it was heading into slightly more unknown territory. I mean, most people who read about the history of the Barons Wars, it'll go up to Evesham and then you'll maybe have a, a couple of pages afterwards. And, you know, there was some other stuff happened. So really trying to dig into all of that and trying to expand it and look at what was really going on, what was really at stake. And all of these fascinating events that were taking place that had received very little attention, very little description. Um, I, I loved it. And hopefully readers will find it as, as compelling as the previous two books. I'm sure they will. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I need to see how it ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, in, uh, beyond that, I mean, because I've, I've now finished that one. So I'm moving on to um, potentially another another era i mean i'd love to go back to the middle ages I, I just feel there's so much material there i mean even just the 13th century itself looking at after the barons wars the the reign of edward well initially the the crusade of edward to uh, the holy land the last crusade really in uh, 1270 and then the wars in wales and in scotland and these ongoing baronial um revolts uh, not quite yeah, as yeah. not quite as uh, as bloody as the barons wars but certainly those political, social conflicts were ongoing throughout that period. So there's just so much material there. It's so fruitful for, for stories, I think. I would love to write more about that. Um, so, yeah, I'll definitely go back to the Middle Ages again, um, maybe the 13th century, maybe another time. Yeah, yeah sounds good. Oh, I look forward to it. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us, Ian. I have to say, having lived the last eight years, I think it is more or less in the 13th century. I totally get the attraction to it. I keep going back to it. Every time I've done something else, I end up going back to the 13th century. It is um, it's such a fascinating period. And I think it is, it is the height of the chivalric period, but it's also the harbinger of change. Yeah, totally. You know, because it's yeah. the last time it's just before gunpowder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the warfare is going to change drastically very soon and they're not aware of it but you know we see it out afterwards and it's like that's what it used to be like <laughs> yeah it's always fascinating isn't it looking at these periods where you know we know looking back on it that everything was about to change but people at the time obviously didn't and that's one of the attractions I always think mm. of historical novels is that they can you know you take the reader on this journey into the past and you can invite them to imagine what it was like to live in this time and not to know what happens next you know not to know who wins yeah. how things are going to change and to try and restore mm. yeah that sense of immediacy of living in an actual moment rather than looking at something with the benefit of historical hindsight you know the people in the past were people mm. like we are today you know they didn't know what was about to happen they were making decisions on the spot and historical fiction, if it's if it's done well, it can restore that sense of an, an ongoing moment, of a living moment. And that's certainly what I try to do in, in my books. So, yeah, the 13th century offers a, a huge amount of possibilities for doing exactly that. It really does. Thank you very much for joining us, Ian. 
I sort of wish we had more time because I just want to carry on talking about it. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure to discuss all of this with you. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on. I will say to listeners, if you want to read um, Ian's books, Battle Song and War Cry, that is the order. But if you just want to see read Warcry, they are very much, they can work as standalone books. You don't have to have read the first to read the second. And Warcry came out just before Christmas. So if you have any Christmas money, go and get it. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> so thank you, Ian. We'll say goodbye. And it's been absolutely fabulous having you on. I hope you'll come back when the third book comes out and we can talk about that. Yes. Well, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, thanks very much. Um, I would I would love to come back and talk about that one as well. There's uh, plenty more to discuss. Yeah, it's good. Very good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much to Ian. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. Do join us next time when we'll be staying with the battle theme and discussing what is arguably one of the most important battles in English history, the Battle of Brunanburgh, with novelist MJ Porter. I've been Sharon Bennett-Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe to ensure you don't miss the next one? Goodbye. Goodbye.